0: I appreciate you being here. Um, I, I allowed uh, Philip Jackson, I'm a little strong, I allowed Philip Jackson, our associate pastor, uh, to teach on Wednesday nights in in the month of January. And he did four weeks from the book of Jonah and uh, and did a good job. Um, but I've put him back on the shelf where he belongs. <laughs> and... Uh, and before I start let me let me let me give you some of my master plan here um, about five years ago um, I don't know maybe not quite that long whenever we built this the last building that we've built as a part of our campus and uh, somebody came up to me in all sincerity and said, "Man, look at this beautiful campus. look at all these buildings, look at everything that's happened here." Um, the day that you retire, you're going to have quite a legacy to pass on. And I knew that they meant well, but I have to be honest, I spent about three days in a depressed funk <laughs> at the idea that buildings would be my legacy. And as I talked to the Lord about it, 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 it was perfectly timed because it, it hit about the time that our growth really took off and in response to that our staff began to expand in size and i was able to to bring some 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 more people onto our pastoral team and god really taught me that my legacy uh is i mean the church is his okay nothing about evergreen is my legacy but my legacy is the young men that i leave behind who know how to pastor in the next generation and when I figured that out, then all of a sudden I thought, okay, I need to restructure my time so that I'm investing where I need to invest. Well, we have, we have a number of young guys, um, but also the ladies that are on our staff, um, I just began to, to take very seriously this, this, this responsibility that I have. Um, almost more than church members. We're structured in a way that church members are connected. They're in Sunday school classes and they're in life groups and and they're connected in ministry teams and and all sorts of things. My responsibility are the pastors. And so I really began to restructure the way I approach that. And, And especially with the young guys that I am in a sense training to become pastors. Um, one of the things that is important, we can study preaching, we can talk about preaching, I can explain preaching, we can practice exegesis and, and, and research illustrations, but you can't learn to preach unless you preach. And it's not preaching without an audience. So... Um, I invited Philip to teach because I, he's, at the, he's a little bit further advanced than some of the others, and he's at the place of uh, where I'm, uh, we're talking about teaching in series. Um, but I've reserved three spots this spring uh, for other young men on our team, and then I've reserved a couple of spots in the fall for a couple of the others. So when you arrive on a Wednesday night, and I'm not teaching, okay, It's not because I'm exhausted and I I just have to have a break. There's a method to my madness. I'm creating opportunity in front of a real crowd for these young guys to teach the word of God. So what that means is I don't want you to come in and go, oh, the pastor's not here. I want you to come in and sit down and open your Bible and, and give those guys feedback and give them encouragement and um and just watch them because there's real visible tangible growth happening in their leadership skills and in their teaching skills so uh you will see others teach occasionally Um, i'm still the primary teacher of this church i'm the teaching pastor it's not really a shared ministry but there's no other way for me to, to raise them up unless I give them some opportunities. Now, having said that, we're going to start a new teaching series tonight from the life of King Hezekiah. The story of Hezekiah is accounted for in the books of 2 Kings, uh, 2 Chronicles. And there's about four chapters in the, in, in the book of Isaiah that speak about this particular king. Um, I'm going to touch on Isaiah here and there, but we're primarily going to be in 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles. Now, you might say, why? I mean, that's kind of an odd choice. Out of everything in the Bible, uh, you know, I typically preach books of the Bible. Why the life of, of a king and why Hezekiah? Well, one of the differences between Christianity and virtually every other religion in the world is that there are stories in other religious writings in hinduism and buddhism there are there are stories Uh, a lot of times they have a real mythological feel but it's sort of a collection of random events the bible more than any other religious book is a book of biographies I mean, you know, we, we look at, the, at, at the, the names of people that we recognize in the first 11 chapters of Genesis, the foundational chapters of, uh, of human history. And then we go to an extended walk through the life of Abraham. Abraham is followed by Isaac. Isaac is followed by Jacob. The last 14 chapters of Genesis is the story of Joseph. We get to Exodus and all the way through Deuteronomy it's the life of Moses then Joshua then there are judges that run in cycles through the book of Judges then we're into Samuel who's the final judge who bridges that gap to uh, the Kings Saul David Solomon then the divided kingdom, and we know about all of these people because they're not passing characters in some mythological backstory. The Bible, we we, we can say by faith, God is the central actor in the the Bible, and yet he displays his activity in, around, and through the lives of real-life people with all of their flaws, with all of their shortcomings, with all of their weaknesses, the Bible is brutally honest about the characters that it covers. There's the, the, the academic word is hagiography. Hagiography simply means when you, um, when you write a, a, a biography, a historical biography, and you, you polish it up and you shine it all up so that the character is larger than life. Uh, George Washington. Has probably had more hagiographic biographies written about him than anybody else it's it's almost like he walks above the water as a saint well the bible doesn't do that the bible doesn't paint these pictures of of people who are larger than life we get to the new testament and we have peter who is the clear leader and yet peter crashes and burns more than anybody um and the Apostle Paul. I mean, this, this guy was the greatest theologian and church planter of the New Testament era. And yet, his own testimony about himself is, let me tell you about my story because I'm the chief of all sinners. Uh, nobody deserves what they do in the kingdom less than I do. So occasionally, it, there's value to, to teaching books of the Bible. But especially the historical books of the Old Testament, like 1 and 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, those those sections, um, they're really written around the cycle of, of the lives of individuals. So sometimes there's value to zero in on a person that Scripture holds up to us, always as an example of what we should be and a warning and a caution about the things we shouldn't be and so i've done a lot of biographical preaching over the years the life of elijah the life of elisha uh, moses most recently um, joseph and and some others Uh, but i've never preached through the life of hezekiah and so as i approach this i just decided that, that this would be a great place for us to spend the spring this is, for Evergreen, the year of endurance. And the story of Hezekiah is one of the great stories because Hezekiah was king at a pivotal moment in history. Assyria was the reigning superpower. In fact, there was no superpower in human history to this point that could compare to what Assyria had become. They, were, they had the most massive army, they had the, the widest, the broadest, the f- most far-flung kingdom. Uh, they were unparalleled in cruelty and the way that they treated conquered peoples. Um, what we're going to find out is that Hezekiah comes to the throne of Judah. Now, remember, remember the, the backstory? You had Saul, who was followed by King David. David was the golden era of Israel. David is followed by Solomon, his son, wisest man on the earth. They came far and wide to observe his wisdom. And when Solomon died, his son Rehoboam came to the throne. Rehoboam was young and stupid. He was in many ways the opposite of his father. And he cracked down and became oppressive to the point that there was a rebellion and the 12 tribes split into two kingdoms. There were 10 northern tribes that maintained the title of Israel, and then Judah and Benjamin in the south uh, took the name of Judah, and they became separate nations. And from that point forward, we have parallel lines of kings that, that take us through the rest of the Old Testament until under the assault of the Assyrian army, As judgment for uh, their stiff-necked rebellion against God, Israel is carried off into captivity, never to be heard from again. The ten northern tribes are taken uh, by Assyria, and that was a a typical strategy in the ancient world. Uh, People were less likely to, to fight and put up a rebellion if you disconnected them from their roots. So you would force march an entire people group away from their own region and territory where they were deeply connected and you would scatter them across the empire. They would intermarry and what you had was an empire of people who in a sense were rootless, no ethnic identity whatsoever, much easier to control. The 10 tribes were taken off into captivity and, and disappeared into the pages of history. Hezekiah is the king of Judah, the southern kingdom. And he comes to the throne at the zenith of the power of Assyria. And he's there watching his immediate neighbor to the north, Israel, as they are attacked, invaded, conquered, carried off, and they disappear forever. If there was anybody that should have been quick to come to the negotiating table and, make, and cut a deal with Assyria, it would have been Hezekiah. Because he had seen up close and personally uh, the overwhelming might and power of the Assyrian empire. The way the story unfolds though is very different from that. Hezekiah had one true loyalty and it was to the Lord God of Judah consequently he gives us a great example of enduring by faith in extraordinarily difficult days and I've entitled this series leading like a king sometimes when we study the kings of the Old Testament we we give into this misunderstanding we say well You know, I can't do what he did. He was a king. I'm not a king. I don't have power over people. Listen, throughout human history, the greatest kings are not the ones who ruled by decree. They were the ones that ruled by leadership. Their people followed them because they trusted them. (coughs) So we're going to see in the life of Hezekiah some leadership principles that are not reserved only for kings, there are really some lessons here for those of us who are charged with exerting godly influence for the kingdom in difficult days. I mentioned at Men's Prayer Breakfast this morning, I've been following a a story on on Twitter over the last few days. There's a pastor that seems like a good guy. I've never met him, but I've, I've... I followed his account uh, for for some time, and he made the horrible mistake over the weekend of suggesting that women should recognize their God-given value and they should live up to uh, the tremendously significant creatures that God made them to be And quit showing themselves themselves off physically on social media in in immodest ways now i read the first quote i mean the first tweet and it didn't even catch my attention i just went right past it because for me there was nothing hugely (laughs) it wasn't a big deal i was like well that's true you know women should recognize their value they should be what God created them to be not lower themselves to, to, you know, to, to behavior that's unseemly and immodest. This guy, this guy has been verbally savaged for days. I mean, it is nonstop because he's oppressive, And judgmental and bigoted and you can't tell anybody how they're supposed to live their lives and why don't you just take that religious nonsense and your sky daddy who's and all your book of fairy tales I mean the vitriol has just been unholy in the extreme and I was like wow imagine if he'd actually said something controversial And I want to just cross paths with this guy and and shake his hand and say, listen, brother, you do what you do. Don't back down. The reason our culture is like this, I'm convinced, is because when God created us, no matter how hard we fight against it, we, we, we push for 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 sexual freedom and we push for gender fluidity and and we push for unrestrained uh, access to anything we want and all we are doing is self-medicating because there is this still small voice in us called a conscience that god gave us that tells us you stand guilty and you need to do something about that and when somebody says something that even hints that there might be something wrong one comment, one comment that, that, that a guy said, he said, you know, um, I don't know why anybody would, would believe in Christianity. I don't believe in God, and I can look at pornography anytime I want to. And then he followed it up without irony. He followed it up by saying, so when I'm depressed and despairing, I just look at Pornography. And I was like, there is a lifestyle that you should commend to everybody. I mean, with no recognition that maybe this lifestyle he's so proud of is what makes him so miserable all the time. There's a testimony in his own heart that he refuses to see. But this guy suggests that there should be some standards, some values, and that sets him off. Because if there are standards or values then maybe I'm not okay. And that might require something of me. Now, why am, I, why am I giving you all this backstory? Because we're going to find in the life of Hezekiah, he started as co-regent. That is, he was king in Judah uh, for several years alongside his father, who was a king by the name of Ahaz. Hezekiah is one of the four great kings besides David in the history of Judah. Ahaz, his father, is not one of those four. He was a godless man. And I wanna show you um, the culture in which, when when Ahaz finally died, that co-regency dissolved and Hezekiah became king uh, in his own independent rule. Uh, Historically speaking, he was probably co-regent with his father from 729 to 715 B.C. And then he ruled Judah from 715 to 686 B.C. um, on his own. He comes to the throne. Judah is in terrible condition because Ahaz was a godless king. Israel is in even worse condition and he watches the Assyrians sweep in and take Israel out of the pages of history. And so we're going to see Hezekiah introduced. I want to start, I'm going to read, I want to read the whole chapter because the Word of God has power in it, in and of itself. I'm going to read, um, I'm going to read 2 Chronicles chapter 29. And then after we read 2 Chronicles chapter 29, we're going to take that as sort of backdrop. Then we're going to go to a few verses in Kings tonight, which really give a An introduction summary of the life of Hezekiah and and I'll break it down for you according to the outline uh, that I've given you tonight so Hezekiah uh, in 2nd Chronicles chapter 29 it says Hezekiah became king when he was 25 years old and he reigned for 29 years in Jerusalem and his father's and his mother's name oh by the way if you if you're trying to make sense of the math um kings, the, the account of Hezekiah's time in kings includes some of the years when he was a co-regent with his father. But but Chronicles doesn't do that. The Chronicles account of Hezekiah is entirely limited to the 29 years that he was sole king in in, in Judah. So that's there's a little bit of historical adjustment that you have to make. Uh, when you put those two together. Hezekiah became king when he was 25 years old, and he reigned for 29 years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Abijah, the daughter of Zechariah. He did what was right in the sight of the Lord in accordance with everything that his father David had done. In the first year of his reign, in the first month, he opened the doors of the house of the Lord and repaired them. He brought in the priests and the Levites and gathered them into the public square on the east. Then he said to them, Listen to me, you Levites, consecrate yourselves now, and consecrate the house of the Lord, the God of your fathers, and carry the uncleanness out of the holy place. For our fathers have been unfaithful, and have done evil in the sight of the Lord our God, and they have abandoned him, and turned their faces away from the dwelling place of the Lord, and have turned their backs. They have also shut the doors of the porch and extinguished the lamps. They have not burned incense nor offered burnt offerings in the holy place to the God of Israel. What he's doing is he's reviewing all of the requirements for temple worship and the sacrificial system that the temple was built for that have been completely ignored under the rule of his father. (coughs) Verse 8, therefore, the wrath of the Lord was against Judah and Jerusalem, and he has made them an object of terror, of horror, and of hissing, as you see with your own eyes. For behold, our fathers have fallen by the sword, and our sons, our daughters, and our wives are in captivity because of this. Now it is in my heart to make a covenant with the Lord God of Israel, so that his burning anger may turn away from us. My sons, do not be negligent now, for the Lord has chosen you to stand before him, to serve him, and to be his ministers and burn incense. Then the Levites arose, Mahath, the son of Amasai. Now, I'm going to skip all of this, okay? Um, I can say them any way I want to because you don't know how they're pronounced. Um, But he's just going to outline the Levites who are going to take leadership roles in this revival of temple uh, practices. Um, verse 15. So they assembled their brothers, consecrated themselves, and went in to cleanse the house of the Lord according to the commandment of the king by the words of the Lord. So the priests went into the inner part of the house of the Lord to cleanse it, and they brought every unclean thing which they found in the temple of the Lord out to the courtyard of the house of the Lord. Then the Levites received it to carry out to the Kidron Valley. Now they began the consecration on the first day of the first month. And on the eighth day of the month, they entered the porch of the Lord. Now, I just want to pause here. Notice it says they started cleaning out the temple on the first day of the first month. That's not the first day of the first month of the year. That's the first day of the first month of Hezekiah's reign. In other words... We're, we're used to, in our culture, uh, at least over the last several presidents, it's always a big deal. There's a presidential inauguration, he gives an inauguration speech, and then he goes back to the Oval Office, and what does he do? He signs executive orders. On his very first day, he's going to change some things. Well, that's what's happening here. On the first day of the first month of Hezekiah being king, his attention was to the temple. And we'll talk about that some more in just a minute. Uh, It says, Then on the eighth day of the month they entered the porch of the Lord. Then they consecrated the house of the Lord in eight days, and finished on the sixteenth day of the first month. Then they went in to King Hezekiah and said, We have cleansed the whole house of the Lord, the altar of burnt offering with all its utensils, and the table of the showbread with all of its utensils. Moreover, all the utensils which King Ahaz had discarded during his reign in his unfaithfulness, We have prepared and consecrated, and behold, they are before the altar of the Lord. Then King Hezekiah got up early and assembled the princes of the city and went up to the house of the Lord. They brought seven bulls, seven rams, seven lambs, and seven male goats as a sin offering for the kingdom, the sanctuary, and Judah. And he ordered the priests, the sons of Aaron, to offer them on the altar of the Lord. So they slaughtered the bulls, and the priests took the blood and sprinkled it on the altar. They also slaughtered the rams and sprinkled the blood on the altar. They slaughtered the lambs as well and sprinkled the blood on the altar. Then they brought the male goats of the sin offering before the king and the assembly, and they laid their hands on them. The priests slaughtered them and purified the altar with their blood to atone for all Israel, because the king ordered the burnt offering and the sin offering for all Israel. He then stationed the Levites in the house of the Lord with cymbals, harps, and lyres, According to the command of David and of Gad, the king's seer, and of Nathan the prophet, for the command was from the Lord through his prophets. The Levites stood with the musical instruments of David and the priests with the trumpets. Then Hezekiah gave the order to offer the burnt offerings on the altar. When the burnt offering began, the song of the Lord also began with the trumpets accompanied by the instruments of David, king of Israel. While the whole assembly worshiped, the singers also sang and the trumpets sounded, All this continued until the burnt offering was finished. Now at the completion of the burnt offerings, the king and all who were present with him bowed down and worshipped. Moreover, King Hezekiah and the officials ordered the Levites to sing praises to the Lord with the words of David and Asaph the seer. The words of David and the words of Asaph, those are psalms. So they sang praises with joy and bowed down and worshipped. Then Hezekiah said, Now... What you have consecrated yourselves to now that you have consecrated yourselves to the Lord, come forward and bring sacrifices and thanksgiving offerings to the house of the Lord. So the assembly brought sacrifices and thanksgiving offerings, and everyone who was willing brought burnt offerings. The number of the burnt offerings which the assembly brought was seventy bulls, a hundred rams, and two hundred lambs. All of these were for a burnt offering to the Lord. The consecrated offerings were six hundred bulls and three thousand sheep. But the priests were too few, so that they were unable to skin all the burnt offerings. Therefore their brothers the Levites helped them until the work was finished, and the other priests had consecrated themselves. For the Levites were more conscientious to consecrate themselves than the priests. There were also many burnt offerings with the fat of peace offerings, and the drink offerings for the burnt offerings. So the service of the house of the Lord was established again, then Hezekiah and all the people rejoiced over what God had prepared for the people, because the thing came about suddenly. Now, let's think about this. In the outline that I've given you, we're going to turn over and really look at, at 2 Kings chapter 18, uh, those first eight verses. It tells the same story, but just in a more summary way. But it's easy for us to, to break it down. Let's start with his first priority. In, in 2 Kings chapter 18, the first four verses says this. Now, it came about in the third year of Hoshea, that's the king in Israel right now. <coughs> it came about in the third year of Hoshea, the son of Elah, king of Israel, that Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, became king. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned for 29 years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Abi, Abijah in Chronicles. That is a combination name. The J-A-H is uh, a part of the the name yahweh so it's a it's a combination word abby would have been a, a shortened version of that full name his mother's name was Abbey, the doctor of the daughter of zachariah he did what was right in the sight of the lord in accordance with everything that his father david had done he removed the high places and smashed the memorial stones to pieces and cut down the Asherah. He also crushed to pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made, for until those days the sons of Israel had been burning incense to it, and it was called Nehushtan. All right, let me talk to you about this. Part of the greatness of this king as a leader, uh, I've entitled this lesson Spiritual Housekeeping, because you can see from the text that uh, clearly he had been serving alongside of his father, but in a co-regency, he would have been the junior partner. He basically would have been assigned uh, lesser tasks. It's like, it's like being vice president. You know, you attend state funerals. Uh, you go to places and, and stand as kind of a showcase piece. But, but you don't really have much power or influence. Uh, but he had thought a lot about what it would be like when he was king. So he's made king. And on day one, immediately... He begins a process of bringing Judah back from the spiritual degradation that had taken place under his father's leadership. Now, it's interesting. The name Hezekiah, in the same way I just told you Abijah, his mother, the J-A-H, comes for, is a combination that comes from the word Yahweh. Uh, Hezekiah is the same. Old Testament names that end in J A H or I-A-H, those are names that have, that have significance because the, the name of God is built into the name. Hezekiah is a, is a word that means Yahweh strengthens me. So even though Ahaz was probably not a good father, he was certainly not a good king, and he was not at all faithful to the responsibility of leading the people of the one true God, Somehow, his son got the name Hezekiah. Yahweh strengthens me. And in our sanctified imaginations, we can picture this young boy growing up constantly aware that there was something planned for him to do in his life, expressed in his very own name. Yahweh strengthens me. So his first priority on day one, look at the things that he did. In verse 4, Well, verse 3, first of all, it says he did what was right in the sight of the Lord in accordance with everything that his father David had done. All of the great kings in Judah's history, there weren't that many of them, there were four of them, um, but they're all compared to the standard. They're all measured against King David. Now, when this verse 3 says he did what was right in the sight of the Lord in accordance with everything that his father David had done, it's in effect saying, uh, he, he was in the mold of David, which was the highest praise you could give a king. Drop down to verse 5, and just let me carve out one phrase from there. It says, and after Hezekiah, there was no one like him among all the kings of Judah, nor among those who came before him. In other words, he was the very best king in the history of Judah, based on some Some reasons that we'll look at. Now, the other kings, the other three besides Hezekiah that I'll mention to you. One was King Asa. You can look him up. Asa is in 1 Kings chapter 15. Another was King Jehoshaphat. You can find Jehoshaphat in 2 Chronicles chapter 17. The third one was King Josiah. You'll find Josiah in 2 Kings chapter 22. Uh, Asa and Jehoshaphat precede uh, Hezekiah. Josiah follows Hezekiah. They all are compared to David in a favorable light. Um, Josiah is praised uh, pretty highly, just really kind of as much uh, as Hezekiah. But there is this powerful statement in verse 5. After him, there was no one like him among all the kings of Judah, nor among those who came before him. Uh, That is a powerful statement about, and remember, in in 1 and 2 Kings and in 1 and 2 Chronicles, by the way, in the original Hebrew, uh, those books aren't divided. It's just the book of Kings and the book of Chronicles. Uh, If you wonder why, this is a side note, if you wonder why there's so much uh, parallel in in those books, here's what you need to know. 1 and 2 Kings were the history of of the kingdoms as they were unfolding. Israel disappears. Eventually Judah will find themselves in the same state of rebellion about a hundred and just over a hundred years beyond Hezekiah. Judah will find themselves being carried off into captivity, this time by the Babylonian Empire. When they return from captivity, the last... Pages of the Old Testament. Ezra comes back and helps Zerubbabel as they rebuild the temple. Z- Nehemiah comes back and they rebuild the walls around, Jer- uh, around, around Jerusalem. S- the book of Chronicles was written after the exile to recollect all the necessary history so that Judah could reestablish their, their society with the proper families who had descended within family lines because if you were from the line of the Levites, you had priestly duty assigned to you. And, and so there were, there were elements of uh, a, a family life that had to be reconstructed. So they cover the same period of time, but they're written uh, several hundred, a couple of hundred years apart. Uh, and, and really for different purposes. So that's why, that's why we can overlay them. But they give us kind of a, a different perspective because Chronicles reads like a history textbook. While Kings reads like uh, a newspaper headline. And it's because of when they were written. Now, these are the things that, that display his first priority. Look at these verses. It says in verse 4, first of all, He, and all of this is immediately, remember, this is the first day of the first month. He removed the high places. He removed the high places. Those were places that had begun to be in competition with the temple. Um, The people of God were instructed three times a year to make their way to the temple, first to the tabernacle, but eventually to the temple in Jerusalem, And that was to keep God as the central um, identifying reality that gave the nation their significance. But as they got lazy, as the temple worship became slack, what happens is they made allowances. They would create a local, uh, 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 an extension of the temple initially. The idea was, well, if you can't get up to Jerusalem every time you're supposed to, just go to the local place. And you can worship God there. Here's the problem. They were still infected with the idolatry of the surrounding Canaanite nations that were around Israel and Judah. So as soon as you have a separate worship place, an altar made of stones, a a pole that that represented a, a, a call to look up to deity, Uh, What happens is these extensions of the temple eventually evolved into competing worship places. And as competing worship places, they actually devolved into pagan sites. So Hezekiah comes in on day one and he says, "Okay, go take them down. He dismantled the stone structures. He broke down the Asherah poles. Uh, those were the the poles that uh, that were a part of, of Canaanite pagan uh, fertility worship. Um, go take them down. We can't have nice things. These are no longer extensions of temple worship. They've become something else, and they're drawing us away from God instead of pushing us toward God. They've got to go. But then... He tells, he tells us something in 1 Kings that is not mentioned, it's not recorded anywhere else in the Bible. This is the only place. The second thing he does after he removes the, uh, the high places, the worship locations... It says, he smashed the memorial stones to pieces. Oh, no, he, and cut down that asherah. He also crushed to pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the sons of Israel had been burning incense to it, and it was called Nehushtan. What in the world is that? Well, if you remember when Moses was leading the people through the wilderness, there was a time when they, as they so often did, acted unfaithfully, and God allowed an infestation of vipers into the camp. And people would get bitten by these poisonous snakes and they would die. And they came to Moses and they said, we repent. We've sinned against God. Cry out to God on our behalf. Intercede and, 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 and solve this snake problem. Moses goes to God. God says, okay, here's what I want you to do. I want you to cast an image in bronze of a serpent. And I want you to lift it on a high pole on the outside of the camp. Now, this is fascinating because you say, "Well, this is just bizarre. Where does this stuff come from? Listen, every single move God makes in the Old Testament is a teaching object lesson. Every single one. The lesson of the serpent was it was on the outer edge of camp. It was lifted up, and the instruction was anybody who is bitten by a snake and understands their condition, they're going to die. They have nothing in themselves that can save them. See if any of this sounds familiar. If they will approach this image that has been lifted up, and they will look to it. They'll be healed. What does that sound like? In John 12, Jesus says, And I, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to me. What is salvation if not coming to the place where for, maybe for the first time in your life you are painfully aware Of your condition and that you can't do one thing to fix it and you approach the one who is lifted up and you cry out to him the looking up and the crying out is the confession of helplessness which is a prerequisite of salvation God doesn't save anybody by taking their sufficiency and adding a little bit around the edges He wipes the slate clean, and he makes us new creations. Well, that's the backstory. It happens in Numbers chapter 21, if you want to go see the story. What had happened in the centuries since that time is that that snake lifted up had become something of an idol. Why? Again, because the serpent in Canaan, remember they were out in the wilderness when God did this, Now they've brought it with them, they've conquered the land, they've divided it up among the tribes, they each have their own areas, and now they've preserved this symbol of their time in the wilderness. Now originally, it was probably a reminder of God's grace and mercy in the middle of their rebellion. But over the generations, guess what just happens to be a pagan fertility symbol in Canaanite religion? The serpent. Somewhere along the way, they lost sight of the God of Israel and the grace and mercy offered in the wilderness. And this snake on a pole had become one more idol that they were offering sacrifices and incense to. This snake had become nothing more than a newer version of the golden calf that started all their problems back in the day. So what does Hezekiah do? Listen, every church ought to have this mindset. There are things that are good, and they started good, and they meant well, and they they reminded us of all the right things. But over time, they were passed along to generations that didn't know the full story or didn't Honor the full story. And sometimes those things that started out good, it's time to take them down. It's time to take them out because they've become not reminders of the grace of God. They've become obstacles to the worship of God. And so it's interesting. uh, This event is not recorded anywhere else in the Bible. Uh, It's great language here. It says, "...he crushed to pieces." The bronze serpent. He pulverized it. Number three, we read in chapter 29 of 2 Chronicles, that whole chapter, uh, he cleansed and consecrated the temple. He started on day one. It took him a week to clean up the outside of the temple. Then it took him a second week to clean out the inside of the temple. They began to consecrate it. That is, to, to clean out those things that made it impure or unusable for approaching the true God. There were certain requirements. It had to be done in a certain way. Because, again, every part of temple worship was an object lesson, a visual lesson about how you may approach God. And so they had to consecrate first themselves and then the space, they had to offer sacrifices. Sacrifices involved animals that were killed because without death, the Bible tells us there's no forgiveness of sin. Justice demands that sin not be winked at, not be passed over. God can't just say, oh, aren't they cute? They didn't mean anything by it. Sin has to be atoned for. It has to to be brought to justice. Well, eventually, there's going to be someone called Jesus who's going to do that once and for all forever. But until then, in the Old Testament, the sacrificial system was this object lesson where they would, they, there would be death and the blood, which represented the life that was laid down, the blood is sprinkled over the altar. Why? Why? Because the blood figuratively serves as a covering, a protection between my sin and a perfect God. When we get to Hebrews chapter 9, that's exactly what the writer of Hebrews tells us. That we now are allowed to enter boldly into the presence of God. For the first time, we're allowed to be in the presence of God. Why? Because we've been covered, not by the blood of lambs and bulls, but by the blood of Jesus Christ. Doesn't have to be repeated. Doesn't have to happen on an annual basis. It's good once for all forever. Okay? They had to consecrate the temple. They had to consecrate the, the priests See, before a priest could offer a sacrifice asking God to forgive you of your sins, he had to get his sins taken care of. They go through this whole process and Hezekiah instigates this consecration process and it says that it was complete on the 16th day. They went in two weeks. Sometimes we say, man, I just don't, America's just going to hell in a handbasket. I just don't know what's going to happen. Listen, Judah went from the degradation of pagan idolatry to a fresh, clean, consecrated priesthood and temple with proper biblical sacrifices and observing the Passover and the other festivals, they made that transition in two weeks' time. That's what happens in spiritual awakening when the Spirit of God sweeps across a nation. Well, he did. I mentioned we're going to see next week in 2 Chronicles chapter 30 that he led the nation to celebrate the Passover and then he consecrated the people as a nation. And then in 2 Chronicles chapter 31, we'll see in a couple of weeks, he reformed the offerings and the priesthood and other services in the temple. All of these were first priority. He didn't get ready to fight Assyria. He didn't begin an infrastructure program. He didn't begin a social services network. His first priority was, we better get right with God or nothing else we do matters. Man, just pray someday that we have leadership again who recognizes that they stand accountable before God. And they're willing to lead us to make things right with God. Instead of pretending that being in Washington, D.C. makes you God. Faithful obedience. In verses 5 and 6, it says this. He trusted in the Lord. The writer is going to give us some marks of godliness. And the first one is, he trusted in the Lord. (coughs) Excuse me. What you find out when you study the history of this period is that there was, in Judah, two competing political parties. One was pro-Assyria, and one was pro-Egypt. And they both had the king's ear saying, listen, Assyria is going to wipe us off the map unless you go sit down with them and start, you know, lining up and doing whatever we have to do to maintain our, our... Our existence as a nation. You see what they're doing to Israel. Israel is disappearing for good. You better get right with Assyria. Then you had the other party saying, listen, we don't need to bow to Assyria. We need to go make a treaty with Egypt. We need to partner with them and with Egypt on our side, we can stand against Assyria. (laughs) Assyria, Egypt. Egypt, Assyria. What was his choice? He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. Let me tell you about that Hebrew word, trusted. I love this. It's a word that means he leaned all his weight into the Lord. Listen, he didn't just try and stand next to God. He leaned hard into God. Now think about this. Assyria, they've shown, they've proven what they can do. Egypt traditionally had been a mover and shaker in, in global politics. Egypt, Assyria, Assyria, Egypt. Now I'm going to lean hard. I'm going to double down on the Lord, the God of Israel. That was the first part of his faithful obedience, a mark of his godliness. But second, look at this. I love this. Uh, it says in verse six, "For he clung to the Lord." That's a great phrase. The word clung means to cleave like ivy on a tree trunk. You ever tried to clean, clean the you know, moss or ivy or something off of a tree trunk? Man, you have to peel it off because it is locked in. That's the image here. He was hanging on for dear life. There's an element of desperation in this word. He clung to the Lord. In fact... I just used the word cleave. He said, I said it cleaved like, it means cleave like ivy on a tree trunk. This is the same Hebrew word that is used in Genesis chapter two when a man is to leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. We wouldn't have nearly as many divorces as we have in our generation if we understood that the words I do mean I'm going to, with desperation, I'm going to hold on to you Come hell or high water, because we are in this together. That's what the word means. But he's not talking here about human marriage. He's talking here about his absolute, uh, unreserved hold onto the Lord. It says next, he did not desist from following him. In other words, uh, a mark of his godliness, his faithful obedience, was that he followed God without a break. Here's where the word endurance comes to mind. Hezekiah is not marked by what we might call a slap-dash spirituality. Many of us, me included, have had a pretty up and down walk with Jesus over the years. I'm all on fire, I'm all in, pretty casual, kind of rocking along, not really interested. God is gracious because he draws me back. He calls me to repentance. Sometimes he does it gently. Sometimes he gets in my face. But this is a remarkable statement about Hezekiah. He was a man who did not desist. It's interesting that in Hebrew you use, they use the, uh, the negative here. But he, instead of just saying that he uh, always followed God, it's more powerful to say he did not stop at any time. And this is a man that we're gonna see faces some huge political and military challenges. The fourth mark of godliness here is it says, but he kept his commandments, which the Lord had commanded Moses. Jesus tells us in the New Testament that, if you love me, you'll obey my commandments. I don't know what it is in our culture I don't know if it's poor teaching from pulpits. I don't know if it's I don't I don't, I, I, I don't know. I can't figure it out. How did so many Christians in America come up with the idea that Jesus was a self-help guru who just sort of helps us get along and uh, and he's here to just kind of smooth the path for us and and get us over the rough places and. And just pat us on the head and, 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 and just, just make us feel better about ourselves. He just loves you the way you are. No, folks, he loves you so much, he's not going to leave you the way you are. There's a call to live a lifestyle of obedience. Now, sometimes that's fun. Sometimes it's, it's filled with passion. Sometimes it's exciting. Sometimes it's downright hard. But if you love me, Jesus said, you'll do what I tell you to do. The Great Commission, he turned to the disciples and he said, I want you to go out and make disciples and baptize them when you make them. Give them the initiation into the kingdom. And then teach them to observe everything I've commanded you. You see, from the very beginning, Obedience is the first step, uh, uh, baptism is the first step of obedience, but the rest of your life is the process of increasingly following the commands of the life that we've been invited to live. Jesus didn't come and die so that we would have it easy. He came and died so that we wouldn't end up in hell, but when he calls us to himself, It's not to just float on a satin pillow until we get to heaven. It is to live the lifestyle of the kingdom, which is a lifestyle of holiness and obedience. Those words have negative connotations because we're lazy and we're rebellious. Let me tell you something. There is a beauty to holiness when you pursue it and you experience it and you become hungry for it. And to obey the commandments of Jesus is not a burden. It's a blessing. ...end to the other. He went out and God rewarded his faithfulness by giving him the reconquest of territory that had previously been lost by bad kings with bad leadership. Particularly uh, land that had been territory that had been stolen uh, by their neighbors, the Philistines, a perpetual thorn in the side of, of Judah. God honored Hezekiah because Hezekiah honored God. And the idea that his name means Yahweh strengthens me, that's played out because as he stands for truth in his culture, in his generation, God gave him success militarily now it says here in just a summary statement he revolted against the king of assyria and did not serve him we're going to see that story unfold in great detail but what we will find as the story of judah and assyria unfolds is that god will give to hezekiah the most amazing military miracles in the entire old testament that's what's coming as this story moves forward. Father, thank you so much. Hezekiah is going to be an exciting uh, person for us to follow, for us to learn the lessons of how he influenced a generation. Lord, we know that he was king, but we also know that that he led by virtue of the godliness of his life. And Lord, even without the power of, of a throne, you've called each of us to live a life that is a life of power displayed by the marks of godliness as we walk in obedience to the commands of our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, let Hezekiah not be an interesting historical uh, figure that just uh, captures our attention for the moment, but let this be lessons that the Holy Spirit teaches us in the weeks ahead that we can draw into our own lives and learn how, even without a throne and a crown, We can lead like kings in the generation where you've placed us. Father, let us be a faithful church. Let us impact our generation. And let us not ever be discouraged or despairing because of the difficulties of our days. Let us endure because we know the Holy One of Israel. Father, walk with us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.